Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. We're going to do something different this week on the podcast by turning the microphone around and doing exactly what the title of this show suggests, by going inside the hive. I'm going to sit down with the editor of Vanity Fair's The Hive, John Kelly, and no, not the John Kelly who is the chief of staff of the White House right now. This is a different John Kelly, and we're going to discuss what's really going on in Silicon Valley. We're going to talk about Travis Kalanick and how his impatient built Uber into a $70 billion company, but at what cost? We'll talk about what Mark Zuckerberg is really doing on his road trip that looks awfully like a presidential bid, and if Twitter is going to survive the Donald Trump apocalypse. And if it does, what exactly is Jack Dorsey's plan to save the company, or is it just doomed? I'll answer all those questions and more, but first I want to pass the microphone over to my editor, John Kelly. Nick, thanks for having me. It is an honor and a privilege to be on Inside the Hive. Thanks for coming on the show. I wanted to talk to you first about Uber. One of the things that you've done as much as anybody I know is write about how the origin of these Silicon Valley companies end up affecting them when they're kind of more mature. Can you tell me a little bit about how Uber was founded and and why it's not so surprising that it has this bombastic, controversial leader who even in exile seems to be trying to regain the – reclaim the throne of his company? Yeah, I I think the way to kind of set this up is really – to think about uh, the one, the only Mr. Black Turtleneck, Steve Jobs. Um, you know, this, this, the founding of Uber and the founding of Twitter and the founding of Facebook and, and all those companies actually goes back to the founding of, of Apple. And, and Jobs had this kind of management style that was, um, to be quite frank, being a jerk. Um, and uh, he believed that he was, um, he was here to. Uh, to push people to their to their limits, there, there's a. And I'm just going to do a little parenthetical here and tell you a little story that I heard that I never forgotten about Jobs when when he was doing the um, the iPod the iPod uh, when he was building the iPod they uh, they were incredibly secretive and they were building these prototypes and that were cost millions and millions of dollars like a single iPod cost millions of dollars and there's one day that that um, uh, his engineering team came into his office um, or into an office or something at, at Apple, and they um, uh, they brought in this latest iPod, and it looked kind of like a, an iPod, but twice as thick. And they said, this is the thinnest we can get this thing. Um, and, um, and Jobs stood there and looked at it um, and, you know, asked a bunch of questions. And then he walked over to the fish tank, and he dropped this, like, $3 million prototype into the fish tank. And everyone's face was like, oh, oh my God, what did he just do? And he, he said, look, there's bubbles coming out of it. There's still room to make it smaller. And so that was, like, that was the jerk mentality that ended up pushing people to make it smaller. And I think that that you know, it, 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 he ended up building the most successful technology company on the planet and it kind of justified his jerkiness. And I think that when you look at people like Travis Kalanick, 
um, they believed that, oh, in order for me to be successful, I have to be an asshole. And, um, and the company was built that way from, from the moment it started. Um, it was, um, we are the little guy, we're going after the taxi industry, which is the big guy, um, and we're going to do everything we can to, to win. And, um, and if we have to cut people off at their feet or subvert regulation or have a hyper-aggressive culture of engineers that um, is grossly sexist or uh, completely anti-regulation and government in any form whatsoever, then that's what we're going to do. And the end result is that um, you have a $68 billion company, but you also have a CEO who has built one of the most toxic cultures um, I think I've seen in a long, long time. What's fascinating about Uber, which is obviously, you know, we're talking about it because Kalanick is in exile for overseeing an operation that had a, a bro grammar culture. That, that's the, the the phrase you hear used frequently. But what that means, I think, is that there was rampant sexual harassment in the workplace that we now know about. We've seen video of Kalanick berating drivers. It seemed like a generally unhappy place. If it were a public company, it's likely that he, he would have been pushed out a, a long time ago. But it's that's fascinating about Uber is it, it got to where it is because it was fundamentally like – in a legal enterprise from the get-go, right? It was breaking into markets where it was doing things that were against existing regulations. I mean, Uber's sort of um, mantra in the early days was they, they literally were going to change laws in order to be able to operate. Is it any surprise that it turned out this way? No, I think that what happened is, um, you know, I think to a certain degree, these these companies are right. You know, I think that the regulation that existed with the taxi industry had led to a, an industry where getting a cab was was like a was like torture in Game of Thrones. It was it was brutal. You know, the car stunk. The driver was pissed off at you, even though you were paying for this ride. You couldn't get a ride. You know, in places like New York City, the people who had to who owned the taxis were paying hundreds of thousands of dollars for medallion fees to be able to have a taxi. You know, there were people that were skimming off the top and the side and the bottom, and um, it was just a screwed-up industry. And and the initial idea was brilliant. It was like, oh, let's let's try to let's try to break this and make it better. And I think that most things that come out of Silicon Valley, the initial concept is pretty good. It is this idea of this is broken, uh, let me fix it. And the problem I think is is they take it to these extremes. You know, with Uber, um, that always being the little guy always fighting, always, um, always on mentality, uh, um, led them to do things that were just diabolical. I mean, and, you know, and there was that, that, uh, thing that Mike Isaac from the New York Times wrote about uh, called Grayball, where they were, they were, um, uh, they had an app that they gave to people who were regulators in, in, um, uh, in Portland, uh, when they would show them a different version of Uber so that they couldn't get caught, doing illegal things. Um, uh, you know, they, there was instances in, in San Francisco with the DMV where the DMV said, we're not going to let you take your driverless cars and put them on the streets because we don't know if they're safe. And Uber just did it anyway. Um, and, and you saw these things happen time and time again. And, 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 and then also, I think the biggest one was, was the, the lack of, because they wanted to grow so quickly um, uh, and get around these regulations by the government, 
Um, there was the lack of oversight, checking on drivers and making sure they didn't have um, records for felonies and so on, and a lot of them did. And, um, and you saw you know, some pretty bad things happen as a result of that. And I think for Travis, it, the idea was, you know, I'm gonna do whatever I have to to win. And, um, and if there are some, some dead bodies along the way, then so be it. And, um, and I think that uh, um, everyone kind of played along with that, the investors, the employees, everyone, because the company was growing so quickly and, and, and the valuation was just so massive. Um, until the point that uh, it, it all kind of came crashing down. And, and the only reason that he got fired, in my opinion, was because it was a potential that the valuation of the company was going was gonna to be lowered. It had nothing to do with the ethics and morals. Do you remember when you first started hearing about Kalanick in the Valley? Do you remember when you first started to hear venture capitalists talking about wanting to get into the company? Because to my mind, one of the things that made Uber such an appealing bet was Travis's personality, right? Was He was somebody who was just an absolute killer and VCs will always say that they're investing in the person as much as they're investing in the enterprise. Yeah, I, well, I do remember because I had just moved to Silicon Valley um, when Uber had just started. And um, and I remember it because I didn't have a car at first uh, when I first got there. And a friend of mine who's kind of like tapped into every everything that's going on um, in tech, uh, I, was, I remember I called a taxi one day or something and he was like why don't you just get an uber and i was like what the hell's an uber and he's like it's this new company that uh, garrett camp who had started um stumble upon uh, had started and garrett was the the main funding source behind uber and um and so i remember ordering it and it was really cool and neat it was expensive because it was black cars back then so you were paying kind of a premium for for a ride um and the original con the original goal was black cars and Back then, Travis was involved, but a guy named Ryan Graves was actually running the company. Um, and what happened was um, it quickly became apparent that that this thing was something that was actually going to be big because, you know, while I was uh, just a, you know, a, a, a New York Times journalist not making that much money, there were a lot of people in Silicon Valley that were, and they started, they, they started immediately stopping to use their car and starting to use Uber black cars. And so they, they realized there was a market there. And Ryan, who's a very sweet guy, was not an aggressive human being and, and um, was essentially said, they said, okay, you're not going to run the company, Travis is. And I, and I remember meeting him for the first time, and I had a conversation with someone, and I was like, he seems really aggressive. And, and, uh, uh, not realizing just how aggressive he was. And the person said to me, well, he, he had this company in the past and he kind of got screwed over and he, he has this, he has something to prove to everyone that he, he can make this, this thing, uh, successful. Um, and I think that once it started to take off, um, he was, he was not going to take his foot off the gas pedal. He was just going to go as fast as he could. You're right. Uber started as a, a black car company. It was, I think that's probably what inspired the name, right? That it was, it was as exclusive, sort of um, uh, big business meeting and, and nightclub and, and from the airport sort of transportation thing. But part of what excites investors now is it's a logistics network, and, and maybe it'll work in a driverless universe. But certainly when you see things like Uber Eats or Uber Ice Cream, which is now having a promotion um, uh, that I just walked past, uh, taking over a big part of Union Square, Uber could be all kinds of things. It could be a competitor to, to FedEx or, or Amazon in some way. Was that clear? at least 
to, to you or, or to Kalanick or to VCs in the early days that this could mushroom well beyond just being a taxi service? Oh, I don't think so. I, I, I mean, I, I, for me, I, I never imagined it would, you know, I, I remember the shock and awe when they started letting normal people without black cars, you, you know, come on the service. And I remember taking a black car to the airport uh, in San Francisco and, and the guy spent the entire drive complaining about how the service was going to crumble because um, the whole reason people used Uber was just because they wanted the luxury experience and now you're just going to be getting in some random guy's car. Clearly, Travis and Garrett and company had a had a vision for what what was going to happen. Um, I, I I don't know if in the beginning they and in fact I do know that factually they did not envision in the beginning that um, it was going to be a logistic service. Uh, you know, in the beginning it was like I can't get a taxi. This is a bullshit experience. Let me fix it. Um, but I think that very quickly they realized that, and that was when I think that investors really started to get excited. Because it's one thing to take on the taxi industry and, and try to disrupt that, but but the the idea, you know, and this is what Amazon is doing, but they're doing it a lot quieter than Uber did. You know, it's it's that last mile um, where how do you get something to someone in that last mile? And Uber Eats, of course, is that attempt, and Amazon's drone project is that attempt, and driverless cars, of course, will be that attempt. And um, and I think that the concept that you could imagine anything being being brought to you by an Uber was was the thing that really started to push that valuation uh, through the roof uh, until it got to you know close to seventy billion dollars. You know, one of the things that I think about frequently now um, that that Uber is going through this leadership crisis. Something you mentioned to me a while ago, maybe even a year ago, when you were working on your Theranos reporting for that great Elizabeth Holmes story, you said that there were well, there weren't a lot of murmurs uh, in in the wider world and the media about what was going at going on behind the scenes at Theranos, at least in um, in early days, that there were some entrepreneurs and people around the Valley who were skeptical about the sort of science that the company was producing. There certainly were people in the, in the academy saying the same. But you, you mentioned to me that a, a lot of entrepreneurs were giving homes the benefit of the doubt because they knew that in the life cycles of their own company, there was, for lack of a better term, sort of a fake it till you make it culture, that you have to do a lot of things to Starting a company is hard. You have to do a lot of things to get it off the ground. Was there some sort of latitude with Uber in early days? Because we've been hearing stories for a long time about a culture problem there. These latest emails that Kara Swisher at Recode reported about Travis Kalanick saying these disgusting things before going down to Miami on a company trip out. He wasn't going to sleep with anyone. That, that, that all sounds revolting, but it's not entirely at odds with what we were kind of hearing about what was going on there, Right. Well, yes, but the thing is, I think um, we we all knew about it, but we but people still people still used Uber, you know. I mean, there was the the first inkling of when it started to there started to be some backlash um, was when people kind of started to get fed up um, uh, several months back uh, uh, with Uber when I believe it was during some sort of crisis or event where Uber was was surge charging people. Um, to get out of a certain area, I forget the specifics of it, but people started to say, you know, uh, they started to be the hashtag delete Uber, um, and um, and then and then you know, and that was when that was the first time I remember Uber responding to a crisis. But it wasn't. It was actually, you know, what it was. It was. Um, uh, it was. There was something that happened with that, but there was also Travis joining um, the Trump uh, tech board, um, and. Um, 
and but that but but and which of course pushed him to get off that that board and 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 I remember you know I remember writing a piece when I was at the New York Times about Uber surge pricing and how I thought it was pretty ridiculous and despicable because you had people that were you know using an Uber to get to work and then they would try to get home from work and their Uber would cost seven times what it was because you know, uh, uh, because of surge pricing. And Travis was, you know, he was pissed at me after I wrote that piece. He, he sent me like a nasty note. He said, I thought you were a friend of Uber, blah, 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 blah. And, um, but they never changed, you know, they had so much negative press and they never changed that surge pricing rule. And, and this, what happened a few months back when he, um, when the, the first delete Uber hashtag started to erupt through, through San Francisco and Los Angeles and places like that was the first time they ever actually responded to anything negatively. And I think it was because they saw that there were people were actually not using the service. Um, and, and I think that, that was the beginning of the end for them, um, you know, and it, it just opened the floodgates for people to come after them for everything and anything. And eventually, the, the thing that I find so amazing um, is like with all whistleblower stories where you have the big bad CEOs and the big bad companies doing the big bad things, um, it just takes one person who's brave enough to say something aloud. And it was, it was a, a woman engineer who had, who had thought the, cu- the culture was toxic wrote a blog post about it, and, and that was it. That was the beginning of the end for Travis Kalanick. Yeah, there's sort of no question that Susan Fowler was the, the heroine of, of Silicon Valley over the last 12 months. But one of the thing that's, things that's so fascinating to me about how this has all played out has to do with, I guess, the way that innovation is funded in Silicon Valley, that it's, it comes from these venture capitalists who have money from their limited partnerships, which usually get money from uh, mutual funds and retirees, pensioners, whatever. And and those guys are looking for the one big payday. And so while someone uh, who had exhibited Kalanick's behavior might have been pushed out or exiled um, at, at the slightest indication that there was you know trouble behind the scenes, that it might affect the stock price, the people who were behind Uber, who were invested fiscally in Uber, they're incentivized to want a huge payday, right? So if people are using the product, they're incentivized to say, well, you know, let, let's, get, let's get beyond the personality politics here. Do you think that this is sort of a you know, case study in, in the problem with the, the private capital markets as they exist now? Well, I mean, the, the, you know, the thing, if you ask me for a list of things that piss me off about Silicon Valley – Top of the list is the VCs that go around pretending that they're there to make the world a better place when they're really they're just there to make as much money as they humanly can, um, and uh, and that's a perfect example of that. You know, they they invest in anything that they can. Um, you know, the, 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 these VCs for the most part they're not they're not these geniuses that can see the future. They go into a casino called Silicon Valley and they put a few chips down on everything they see on the table and eventually one of those things is going to 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 have a thousand or two thousand x return um and that's where they make their money you know it's it's not um it's you mean not, the, the Facebooks or the Google they're, yeah, they're the looking Facebook, to hit on one huge 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 thing you hit one Facebook um and you, and the return, your return on investment can is can be you know for for a few million bucks can be a billion dollars, and and it pays for your entire fund for and all the screw-ups. You know, ninety five percent of investments by, by by venture capitalists are complete failures, and 
they're a couple million dollars a piece, so it doesn't seem it doesn't make a difference to them because they're going to make it up on on the back end with um, uh, with a Facebook or an Uber or something like that. And and this was actually one of the the big undoings for Travis. Travis didn't want to go public um, with Uber. Um, uh, someone close to him told me that he had a conversation with Mike Bloomberg once, and uh, and he asked Bloomberg for advice, and Bloomberg said, you know, wait as long as you can to go public, because once you go public, you're beholden to the shareholders and, and the, the markets and this, that, and the other, and, and the longer you can and stave Bloomberg it up. Company, of course, is still private, by the way, right? That, yes, that, that, exactly. That, the big take-home there is that exactly. Bloomberg LP is still a private partnership, but yeah. – uh, so Travis took that to heart. Well, Travis took that to heart, and he 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 said, you know, he he told the board he was he didn't want to take the company public yet. So you've got this board of people who are in one of these companies with you know with could be you know I remember when 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 I first heard about Uber, it was valued at like five million bucks. Um, it was you know funded by Garrett Camp, hadn't had any public funding yet. Um, if you had to put $25,000 into Uber back then, it would be worth, you know, ten, tens of millions of dollars today, just 25 grand. There's nothing that you could put money into where you could reap that kind of return. And so the investors that put in tens of millions of dollars are, are, are set to make billions and billions of dollars in profits, but they can't pull that money out until the pump company goes public. And so you have, uh, you know, Benchmark Capital and, um, and other outlets that were really pushing for the company to go public on the board, and Travis, who was who, who stuck his heels in and decided not to. And when there was the opportunity to finally push him out, that was the thing uh, that was at the top of the the top of the pile that kind of pushed everything else forward. So I guess it's not surprising that one of the things we're hearing now is that the board is looking for a CEO who can take Uber public so that they yeah. can they can yeah. cash out completely. Yeah, they they you know. There's, as the, I've reported and Kara Swish has reported and others have reported, you know, uh, the board is kind of in total chaos and array, disarray right now because some people on the board, namely Ariana Huffington, want to bring Travis back. Um, other people on the board, um, you know, want want to want their money back. And so there's this, this third party, which is SoftBank, which is like, I will buy your shares of Uber um, and you can cash out a little bit and... Um, and then if that happens, then Travis could use SoftBank's vote to bring himself back to the company, which he wants to do, and so on and so forth. But then there's a, a large group of people on the board who want to bring in a seasoned CEO, essentially like a Dick Costolo at Twitter, who can straighten the ship, take it public, and you know, and a, a year later they can they can be out of the company. Um, and um, and I think that is essentially what will happen unless the SoftBank thing goes through. I think that they will get someone like that, um, not the greatest CEO in the world, not the worst, um, and that person will will you know see this thing through to the public markets. And um, and then I think what will end up happening is Travis will try to make a return. Taking Uber public is interesting in and of itself. I, I want to get back to, to, to Travis Kalik in a second and, and his quest to return because I, I think you're right. That seems to be where the the narrative is headed. But very few. Silicon Valley companies have gone public in the last couple of years, and the ones that have, such as Blue Apron, appear to already be in the coffin. Basically, I mean, you know, that they're judged so differently by the public markets than they are privately, where investors are are looking for an exit, hoping for an acquisition or something like that. Is Uber, which I think is still, you know, bleeding cash as it tries to grow and expand, and looking at headwinds such as the the, the driverless car race, is it? 
built to succeed in the public markets, or sh- should they be listening to Mike Bloomberg and continue as a private limited partnership? Oh, I think it's definitely built to succeed in the public markets because um, uh, it's only tapped into one or two of its its potential businesses um, and revenue streams so far. Uh, you know, they the the company bought um, the driverless trucking company Auto uh, a year earlier, and putting aside all the chaos there for a moment, and the you know the lawsuit from Google, the um, uh, the goal with that was oh well, here's our next market. Um, that we're going to go after um, the trucking industry, um, and you know, which and forget about the the tens of million, the ten point five million jobs that will be lost as a result. But there's billions and billions of dollars to be made to get things across the country. Um, the you know they imagined a world at Uber where you could Uber anything anywhere, um, and the logistics. You know, the one thing that the thing I give. I mean, I give Uber credit for a lot because of what they did. Um, but the thing I really give them credit for is that the the from what I've heard from employees there is that they had built this system that is essentially almost like artificial intelligence, um, where they can predict essentially where things, where people are going to want things at what time. You know, they can predict that. Um, on a Friday night at 10 o'clock on the corner of Fairfax and Hollywood, within a certain period of time, um, someone's going to call a car. And they can kind of make sure that their cars are in the area based on where people are picked up and dropped off and things like that based on that. So the the goal, just like it was you know, with pizza, it was like, we'll get you a pizza in 30 minutes um, back in the 80s and 90s. The goal with Uber was you shouldn't have to wait more than five minutes for a car. And so that logist, if you take those logistics and then you, you then start to apply them to um, – uh, to things that people need and want, like their coffee in the morning or a pizza at night or whatever it is, um, Uber was perfectly set up to to destroy anyone that got in its way um, uh, in that quest, except one company, which was Amazon. Uh, and I think that, um, uh, that 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 is, you know, if we kind of fast forward, if the company does go public and whether Travis comes back or not, I do think that um, that the 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 next iteration of Uber would be an Uber versus Amazon fight because they're trying to do the exact same thing. It's a sort of chilling future to envision because it does seem as we march forward in time, there's this race towards like gigantism where there are only a few companies left in the world and everything else is just going to kind of be sucked up into them. But but before we get to that future yet, I just want to ask about um, the autonomous, the, the self-driving solution, the, the next market for Uber, because it does seem like it depends on the resolution of this very significant legal skirmish that they're in with Alphabet, which is Google's parent company, which is also a parent company to a company called Waymo, which Alphabet is saying is is uh, where the the self-driving technology for auto, which Uber has acquired, was really created. If if Uber loses on this front, are they? Is it a sign that they're not going to make it to the next step, which is? a sort of self-driving future where they can take advantage of this large logistics web that they've created and all this predictive analytics that they've been able to garner and that they won't actually be able to to take it to market. No, I think I think well just to set this up, I mean, I think, you know, when you look at um at, at this lawsuit, it shows you how important the future of driverless cars is to these companies. Um Google's venture arm, Google Ventures Put in three hundred and fifty million dollars into Uber um, as an investor, which is 
probably worth several billion dollars today. Um, and yet Google is willing to throw that. That's Nick built in advance check, right? From, yeah, uh, yeah, is that one of your advance checks from American I, Kingpin? I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm literally sitting here in my uh, uh, Olympic-sized swimming pool doing this podcast right now, so uh, playing with my drones. Um, no, so, so for them, it, that's a lot of money, you know? But for Google, for Alphabet, it's like, well, we're willing to throw that away to ensure that Google, that sorry, that Uber doesn't, um, uh, doesn't come after the thing that we've been working on for for ten years, which is driverless cars, um, uh, and so th- th- it sets up just how important this is to these companies. the The thing is, I do think that the I think that there is an out for for Uber in this thing. Maybe they settle. Maybe they pay. Maybe they're forced to pay. You know, Alphabet a billion dollars. Maybe the case gets thrown out. Who knows? Maybe, but let's just say that they lost. I think that they would be able to go along and buy another company and use that technology. I think it would put them in a really, really bad place for the future um, because they'd have to play catch up with all the technology they've used. Um, but, uh, but I do think that I don't think it means the end of Uber. Uh, but it was, you know, it's a perfect example. I think that this is a really interesting point about how quickly. They were, you know, Travis was driving this company. He, he didn't do the due diligence that he should have done when he purchased this company to see if, um, if there were these problems uh, with the with with Otto and the CEO and uh, and so on. And and he was in such a rush to get it um, uh, that he got something, you know, that 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 ended up coming to bite him in the ass. And Mark Zuckerberg did the exact same thing with Oculus when he purchased Oculus VR. Um, and it turned out there was uh, there was some patent issues there too, and it was partially because he wanted to get it before anyone else did. That's true. He, he could be forgiven for not knowing that Palmer Lucky was a, a nascent Donald Trump supporter. Um, that, that would all play out later. But let, let's talk more about this kind of march to, to gigantism because one point that you've made to me a lot is that we're, we're nearing an eventuality where all these companies, which all seem to be in complementary businesses now – Uber does transportation. Netflix is an entertainment company. Google is search and moonshots, and and Apple is you know phones and stuff that you need. But there's a future, maybe not that long on the offing, where they're all kind of competing with each other in in what they do on a core level. Do you want to sort of paint this potentially dystopian future? Completely. I I mean I, I believe that in the future. Um, I don't know how far off this future is, but that we will there'll be there'll be there'll be little companies and there'll be medium companies, but there will predominantly be four major companies that are worth a trillion dollars a piece or more: um, Apple, Facebook, Google, Amazon. Uh, um, and you know, even just today, those four companies are worth two point five trillion dollars. Um, and what's so fascinating is if you kind of back up and look at it, um, you know, Google started out doing search. Today, they have driverless cars and venture arms and all these things that, you know, the biggest phone business on the planet um, where, you know, by the time this podcast is done, 1.5 million new Android devices will have been activated. Um, You know, they do all these things. Apple started out making computers. Its main business now is... Um, it's smartphones. It's also working on a driverless car system. It's uh, it's also d- starting to do original content. Amazon has a, a whole segment of its company that does original content just so it can get people to sign up for Amazon Prime so that they'll buy more toothpaste from Amazon. You know, if you don't think that Amazon is going to put out a driverless car 
in the next X period of time, you, you have no concept of what that company is thinking about. Like they, for them, getting things to your house, including yourself, is is their business, um, and um, and they're doing everything. And and what's so interesting is they a company like Amazon or Uber or whatever it is can can buy one company and it, and eviscerate a market. And we saw this happen when Amazon announced that it was buying Whole Foods and the stock of every other um, supermarket dropped by a quarter uh, of its of its market cap um, on the same day. And that's because people are terrified because once, once Amazon can get its food to you, Whole Foods to you, why would you go anywhere else? And once they can reduce the price because that's what they do so well, why would you go anywhere else? And what happens when Amazon releases its flying drones and its driverless car fleet that then starts to compete with Uber and Google and so on and so forth? Right, so in this future, Uber could be a company that drives your morning coffee to your home and has its mobile fitness center where you run on the treadmill watching entertainment that is Uber produced or owned or something like that? Oh, it's it's way more than it drives coffee to your home. In the future, let's just say that you, you decide that Uber is your company that you use to get to, to work every day. Um, so let's just look at driverless cars for one minute. So in the future of driverless cars are right today, if I go and I get in my, in my car and I drive away from my house and go get a coffee, whatever, there's five seats and there's a steering wheel and gas pedals and so on. If, if I'm not driving, I don't need the five seats. I don't need the steering wheel. And, you know, the car can be rearranged. So if, if the future of driverless cars is what we think it is, which is that most people, except the one percent, most the ninety nine percent of us will not have a car. We will call one. You can imagine that I say, "Oh, I'm going to um, I'm going to a meeting. I'm going to call a car that has a treadmill so I can work out on the way to the meeting, or I want to watch a TV show, so I'm going to call a car that has a big flat screen TV, um, or I want to have a meeting uh, and record this podcast with John on my way to lunch, so I will we'll get a meeting car. Um, so. The whole concept of what a car is will change, um, but once you start to look at the algorithms and the predictions that people will make, you can imagine that the, that Uber um, says, "Oh, I know Nick likes to um, to to watch uh, CNN in the morning. I don't actually like to watch CNN, but let's pretend I do for this for this hypothetical." He likes to watch CNN in the morning, and he likes coffee from uh, from Blue Bottle. Uh, and so this Uber shows up based on my um, having access to my calendar because it knows I have a meeting in Santa Monica, and it shows up um, predicting what the traffic will be to get there at the exact moment I need to get in the car with that hot coffee and tuned into CNN already. And that is the, that's the very easiest, simplest version of what this future might look like. Right, and in that future, Uber, the company potentially doing all this, is competing head-to-head against a bunch of other businesses that are probably doing a, a you know, presumably similar sort of offering, too. Yeah, right? a- Amazon, all, you know, be going Amazon has these, these concepts where they're working on with, um, with uh, grocery stores, and one of them is, is a prototype they have where you walk into a grocery store and there's no cashiers, and um, you just pick things up, and based on these cameras and sensors and things, and you walk out, um, you that's that's your grocery shopping done and it's charged to your account. Uh, in the imagine that 
you know, let's just say Amazon says, oh, we're going to buy a refrigerator company and, we, and, they, and they give you the refrigerator for free because this is how Amazon does things. And it can monitor all the things in your fridge and it knows your milk just went bad. It automatically sends you milk and it just shows up at your door from a drone or whatever. Um, and, and uh, it, you know, you, you make a, uh, maybe you're, you're emailing some friends about doing a dinner party on Friday night, and you ask, hey, who's vegetarian, who's not? People respond, and Amazon uh, set, you know, you just forward it to Amazon or whatever, or they just read the email, and they send you all the, the ingredients that it, they know that you need. They know you don't need rice vinegar for that sushi that you're making, so they don't send you that, but they send you everything else, and it shows up at your doorstep on Friday afternoon so you can cook it all because they are competing with Blue Apron that does the same thing. When you talk about the, the, this gigantic future of these, these huge mega companies, one thing that's interesting is a lot of people, I think, do agree with you that it's probably Google, Facebook, Amazon, and Apple are, are positioned to be head-to-head -head competing at, you know, at that trillion-dollar level. If you look at those companies, those are all still generally founder-led companies, with the exception of Apple, um, obviously. Uh, Steve Jobs is the founder, but Tim Cook was very much uh, you know, a, a disciple. Google run by the founders after a, a period where you know Eric Schmidt was um, uh, was this sort of adult in in charge um, managing the company towards a you know a, a massive scale. Facebook is obviously entirely you know follows the, um, uh, the the vision of its founder. I'll get back to Zuckerberg in a second. Amazon is Bezos. You could see venture capitalists in a room right saying. That if Uber is going to compete with these guys at this level, if Uber, which is already worth like $68 billion in only seven years, if it's going to be a trillion-dollar company, we need the founder to be running it. We need Kalanick's vision. And so what if he made some egregious mistakes presiding over the culture of the company or, or uh, berating drivers? We, we can look past that, right? Is, is that the sort of like fundamental moral challenge that we're facing right now with Uber? No, because I think that um, you give the that you give the investors the credit that they really care about building a company that lasts for fifty years. I don't think that's the case anymore. You know, I remember um, <clears throat> my grandfather investing in some of these blue chips, and uh, they uh, these were investments for when he was thirty years old to that he was going to cash out when he was eighty, and uh, and there was this long haul vision of what a company would be, um, and. Um, and I think today, especially with the investors in um, in a company like Uber or, or any of these any of these tech companies, they they want in, they want out, and that's it. They, you know, I don't think that anyone on that board wants to be there in ten years um, and really gives a shit what Uber looks like in ten years. I think that they, you know, they see a company that they invested a certain amount of money and that's going to make them into multi billionaires, and and that's it. You wrote a really good story recently about founders who'd been in Kalanick's shoes before, like Jobs and Dorsey, who had been pushed out, gone off into the wilderness. Uh, in both of their cases, they'd started new companies. Um, but they also, and they also seem to come back with, with a little bit of, you know, some sort of level of maturity that really um, uh, stoked the, the interest of, uh, of Wall Street. Kalanick's only been out of this company for like six weeks do you think he's going to be – and we're, you know, six weeks and we're already hearing that he wants back in. You've reported that it's not a matter of, of if but when. Do you think that he's going to go off and start his own version of Square so that he can prove to Wall Street that he's matured and he can, uh, he can take over Uber at, at the next step? And at the same time, 
do you think that this whole act, this whole kind of Hamlet maneuver that he's going through, is that going to screw over the company as it tries to find a CEO who can take it public? Um, I don't think that uh, um, I don't think that he is going to go off, start a uh, you know a refrigerator company or whatever it is, or Square or or a Pixar or whatever. Um, and try to come back in a couple of years. I think that Travis and look, I've every tech reporter um, who spends a lot of time in Silicon Valley meets all the people they end up covering. Uh, and I can't think of a, a successful CEO who I haven't interacted with on a personal basis at one point or another. And they all have their faults and they all have their qualities. And um, and I cannot think of a single person who I have met in over a decade covering this industry who is more aggressive than Travis Kalanick. He is, somebody once said he's like, it's like a gorilla that like got out of the zoo and he's just beating his chest in front of you. And he's, he is an incredibly aggressive, uh, impatient um, human being. Uh, and that has worked to his strength. Uh, as a result of that, Uber is worth $70 billion and it is as big as it is. But in this instance, I think it's his biggest weakness because you can't just, you come back in like a bulldozer um, and um, uh, and try to take over a company just because you want to be the guy who takes over it. Um, you have to be strategic. And, you know, Jack Dorsey figured this out um, very quickly. He realized that he, when he was kicked out of Twitter um, uh, in 2008, I believe it was, he, um, uh, he had to kind of he had to get his his stuff together he was he was considered an incredibly bad ceo there were all these stories out there about how he would you know leave work early to go to hot yoga class and he was more focused on his sewing classes where he was learning how to make a-line skirts than he was about fixing the server outages and and a litany of of other problems with the company and himself and so rather than try to ram his way back into the company he kind of went through a makeover. Uh, he helped start Square with a, a, a an old high school friend of an old friend of his from back home in St. Louis. He um, he uh, you know got rid of the nose ring and the um, uh, the blue dreadlocks and all the other stuff that he had. He started to to dress more like an adult. He started to wear suits. Um, he um, and he went on this kind of tour that kind of was a little bit messed up because he took a lot of credit for a lot of things he didn't do. But he went on this tour out in the public and, and spoke at conferences and at Stanford and was on the cover of magazines and things like that, talking about how he solely invented Twitter and solely invented Square and so on. And um, and those things, of course, caught up to him later. Um, uh, but um, but it worked. And what happened was he he went back to Twitter and maneuvered the board in a way that I actually – find quite astounding, um, especially given the way he was he was kicked out of the company. Um, but he was incredibly smart and manipulative and strategic, um, and he ended up coming back to the company not just a second time, but a third time. Uh, Steve Jobs did the same thing. He went off, he started Pixar. He, he was, you know, he, he did not try to get back into Apple. He was incredibly bitter about it, but he didn't, didn't try to get into Apple straight away. And eventually he saw an opening uh, and, uh, and very strategically pounced. 
Travis is like literally, you know, running around like a crazy person trying to figure out how to get back in. And I spoke to someone at the company who said, you know, he should come back one day. I, I truly believe he should come back, but not now. Like, let the company fix its problems, let the company go public, and then he can come back. And let him go and, and go through this phase of, of being changed. And and right now, the only person who, you know, believes that he's already changed is Ariana Huffington, who's going around telling everyone that he's changed, darling. He's, uh, he's a changed man. <laughs> Steve Jobs obviously worked historically well at Apple the second time around. Jack Dorsey, it's probably too soon to tell, although it, it certainly has not provided the the massive stock bump that uh, the very least investors were looking for. Twitter still seems to be uh, struggling and, and it has not been able to increase its monthly active users. The, the, you know, with the exception of our president. With the exception of yeah, one man. Like, uh, yeah, exactly. Who's, who's playing golf right now, threatening uh, a nuclear winter. Uh, it, it's not as, as popular as it used to be. But let, let's play a little game here. Where do you think Uber is going to be in five years or in 10 years, is Kalanick going to, presuming that he he gets back in charge, is he going to be a Dorsey or a Jobs? Um, I think that my prediction is, um, I think that once you run a $70 billion company, um, and, and there's one exception here, uh, and I'll get to that exception in a minute. Once you run a $70 billion company, I think it's very difficult for you to be comfortable in your own skin uh, running a hundred million dollar company, um, you and the, somebody like Travis uh, loves the power that he gets from that, um, and uh, and loves you know uh, loves solving those big problems and um, taking on those big entrenched industries and the regulators and winning, uh, and that's you know it's no different than uh, than a hedge fund guy on Wall Street. Um, the exception is. And I spoke to I've spoken to a few actual entrepreneurs about this who have run big companies and then gone to run, gone on to run smaller companies, and they said that the thing that changed for them in between those instances was that they had kids. Um, and as someone, you have a son, and I have two kids. Um, as someone who has kids, I it makes total sense to me that your goals in life change dramatically, um, and uh, and you appreciate the time that you have with 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 your kids and. And you realize that you know being a seventy billion dollar company is not all that you're here to do, and I think that um, you know if Travis doesn't succeed in coming back right now, and rather than go and build a company, he goes and works on himself and maybe falls in love and has a family. I think he he, he could he could come back and or he could not. Um, if he doesn't, if he continues down the path that he's on, which is uh, to come back at all in in all senses of the word. Um, I do think that he'll come back eventually, but um, uh, but I don't think um, I don't think it'll work out for him uh, the way he thinks. I, I could imagine him coming back and um, and seeing this change company and trying to change the culture back to what it was and, and failing and, and probably having to leave again. Let's talk for a second about another uh, entrepreneur, founder, uh, Silicon Valley giant who is in the process of having his his second kid and and, and actually does seem like he's been slightly transformed by that process. You wrote this week about Mark Zuckerberg. You said you don't think that he's going to run for president in 2020, which is uh, something is a sort of, you know, meme in the world. Uh, a Zuckerberg Trump uh, 2020 race, it, it just boggles the mind so much. So I'm, I'm relieved to know that uh, that seems less likely than it, it did maybe two months ago. 
But you have said that you think Zuckerberg is going to seek higher office in some way one day and that he, he seems to be aware now of not just what Facebook can do in terms of connecting the world, but also is aware of uh, the enormous importance that Facebook plays and needs to be safeguarded because of what it can unleash negatively into the world, too. Yeah, I mean, I think um, uh, I think the the one of, you know, the problem with with Mark Zuckerberg, and I know he's listening to this podcast. He's a huge fan. Uh, he's probably grilling some meat right now and playing with his dog as he listens to us talk about him. Uh, if he is listening, which I know he's not, he needs to fire his photographer. And and just one of the biggest problems with his trope around the country has been that he has this photog- these photographers with him and all these people around him like he's running for friggin' president. And he had, takes these stupid photos of that, you know, that Trump would have taken or Hillary would have taken with him with firefighters or helping clean up a mess with, uh, actually, Trump would never have done any of those things, but, but a traditional politician would have, um, you know, working with, you know, talking to people from the opioid epidemic and so on and so forth. And they make it look like his trip around the country is not a fact-finding mission or a way to meet people that use Facebook, but a political campaign. And, um, and I think that he would do, he serve himself to, to, to fire not just his, um, his photographer, but probably a lot of the people on his comms team, uh, and uh, and just go around the country with with his security detail and take a few selfies, um, or not take any pictures. Uh, that putting that aside, you know, I spoke to a lot of people in the valley about about what was going on, why he was doing what he was doing, um, and the consensus that I heard was that you know he woke up on on the morning of the election and. Um, after the election, and was was quite terrified as to who ended up in the White House, um, given that he has a, a daughter now and, and and now another child on the way. And I think he at first did not believe that Facebook had played any role in in uh, in the outcome of that election, which is astounding to me uh, because that was the first thing that I thought. But at the same time, over a period of a few weeks, as they started to kind of you know, do a little bit of navel gazing, they started to realize, oh, Facebook did play a massive, massive role in Trump uh, getting into the White House. Uh, probably not as big of a role as Twitter did, but, but a massive role nonetheless. And, um, and so he went on this fact-finding mission to travel around the country and so on. And we can chalk it up to, 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 to just being that. The thing that, that points to the fact that I do believe, and the other people I've spoken to do believe that he does want to do something in public office one day, is an amendment they made to the S-1 uh, where they said that Zuck could remain CEO for a two-year period um, and also uh, serve in public office um, in the government. Uh, the belief is maybe, you know, no one can really figure out what Mark Zuckerberg is thinking 20 moves ahead like he can, but the belief is maybe he one day will try to run for something. Uh, maybe it's president, maybe it's governor, maybe it's mayor, um, maybe it's some, you know, something on the UN, who knows? Uh, only he really knows what he's thinking. But the, uh, um, uh, but right now, uh, 2020 doesn't look like it's in the cards. You mentioned in a column that you wrote a number of months ago that President weirdly seems like sort of a demotion for Zuckerberg, oh, given yeah. that uh, the, 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 the vast network operation that he controls. Do you think that he, you know, he, he's he's become a much more personal guy since um, the sort of, you know, the social network uh, era of his career. But do you think he wants to put up with the, you know, the like totally public 
political part of running for office. Because you know, his transcontinental tour, as you say, he controlled it, right? He had a photographer taking pictures. There's something kind of sweet and charming and goofy about it, but it's also staged. It's not retail politics as we know them. Do you think that he's comfortable doing that? Um, I, I that's a, it's a great question. I think that um, uh, yes and no. I think Zuck actually really enjoys the limelight that he has as a result of um, uh, of starting Facebook and running it. Um, uh, he has millions of people that follow his his Facebook page, um, and I think he likes the power he has. You know, I mean, he he uh, from all different levels of, of of the company. I mean, imagine for a moment that I said to you that you sent a tweet that was seen by literally a quarter of the planet. You'd be like, that's it, I'm done. I don't need to do anything else with my life. Like, this, this is a product that literally 2.25 billion people use on a monthly basis and a billion plus use on a daily basis, um, which is incredible. Um, and, and, uh, and I think that um, uh, for him, uh, you know, he kind of enjoys it. He, he loves this, like, attention um, and the power that he has and the influence he can have. And I think that's a big reason why he started the, the, the Zuckerberg Chan initiative. And I think that, um, uh, Bill Gates has actually played, played a huge role in, in kind of being a little bit of a mentor to, to Zuckerberg. Um, but I think that he, you know, uh, for, for someone like you or me, a quarter of a billion people doing and seeing anything that, that we had, had done would be like, that's it, game over, I'm, I'm out. Uh, mic drop for Mark Zuckerberg is not enough, um, and he wants more and more and more. And he needs, you know, to keep growing the company. He needs to keep growing his influence. He needs to change the world. And um, uh, and I think that this is just part of that quest to do that. To play a, a slightly, I guess, sort of only partly hypothetical game, I'm now imagining a debate between uh, Donald Trump and, and Mark Zuckerberg. Even though, as you said, he's not going to run in 2020. I remember, I think, a number of years ago. Zuckerberg was going um, uh, to be interviewed at Code by uh, well Mossberg and Kara Swisher, yeah. and he w- he got very sweaty. There was some like very uncomfortable moment. Um, he got all schwitzy. Uh, Donald Trump also has a large social presence, but he is you know for better or worse like he does his shtick pretty well when the camera's rolling uh, a little bit too well right now. It seems like. Do you think that Zuckerberg could stand up for, against Trump if he is running? For president at one point or other, it does seem as though he'll have to at least confront that in one way. Can he can he take on a, a sort of political bully in a, I guess, not entirely politically correct setting? Is, is he able to push back against the sort of meanness of retail politics? Do you think is he comfortable doing that? I don't know. I mean, I think that um, uh, you know it's interesting when I first wrote about Zuck running for possibly running for office um, earlier this year kind of putting all the dots together and so on. Um, I think that he, uh, the, the response was really amazing. And it, you know, it blew up on my social media, Twitter and Facebook and so on with people commenting on it. And a lot of people were, you know, were like, this is amazing. We, we, could, we could finally have a candidate who understands technology as technology is changing our lives. You've got like Donald Trump and, uh, and other politicians who brag about the fact that they don't use a computer. Um, uh, which I think is just the most moronic thing on on earth, uh, and then um, and then you have, um, but so people were very excited about that. But then there was a lot of people that were, you know, um, uh, were saying not very nice things about Zuckerberg and his religion and so on and so forth. Um, and you know, I think that that would 
you know, the people that voted for Trump, I don't know if they would want to vote for, for, for someone like Zuck. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, I, I think that the good, you know, there's one positive thing that could be negative and could be positive that came out of Donald Trump becoming president. Um, and that positive thing for me is that we no longer have to put up with career politicians who could give two shits about whether they end up making the world a better place, but really care about whether they become president. Uh, and as a result of that, um, you have someone like Mark Zuckerberg or Bob Iger um, uh, that could potentially run for office uh, one day. Um, and I think that that's exciting because these are people who would take a different approach and probably have a better I impact if they did, did actually seek office. Um, you also get the flip side of that, which is, you know, The Rock and Kid Rock and Kanye and people like that who are going to try to run. Um, but hopefully uh, um, we'll get out of this reality culture, reality TV culture of presidents um, after this one and, and, and move on to, to bigger, smarter, better people. Well, I wouldn't be doing my job as a guest on Nick Bilton's Inside the Hive podcast if I didn't ask the one and only Nick Bilton about Twitter. I remember we were hanging out on the day that it was announced that Jack Dorsey was returning to Twitter. It was, I guess, October a couple of years ago. We were having coffee in San Francisco. Uh, I was asking you about it, and I mean, you, you looked at me like someone who had just watched his parents having sex. Like You, you were just like <laughs> absolutely googly-eyed and mortified. Your, your, your mouth was on the floor. Your, your, your hair was curlier than ever. Your, your beard was, was beardier than ever, and you were just stunned. You, oh, you, you yeah. were almost it was, speechless. It was shocking, completely shocking. So what? Uh, two, two years later, it – Dorsey has not been able to move the needle on the stock price, right? The, the, the new products that he was um, – that the, the third era of Dorsey was supposed to bring in, like Moments, didn't really work out. Twitter broadcast the NFL, that didn't really work out. Necessarily, Amazon's doing it now anyway. Twitter has still probably never been more popular. Uh, it, it's been totally hijacked by the leader of the free world. Where do you see Twitter in – in a year or two, it's been unable to successfully sell itself. We went through that whole psychodrama in the last six months. Is there a happy exit for Jack Dorsey, for Donald Trump, for the universe, mankind? There's no happy exit ending for for Donald Trump, but that but for Jack Dorsey, I think that uh, you know the thing I will give Jack credit for is um, he is very strategic. Uh, and um, and very much like Zuckerberg is able to think twenty moves ahead. Maybe he thinks ten moves ahead. Zuckerberg thinks twenty, um, but I think that um, I think that Jack probably knew all along that he couldn't save the company. Um, uh, that you know, if you haven't heard about Twitter and signed up for it in 2017, while it's being used for uh, you know to discuss uh, nuclear arms warfare between uh, um, two large man babies, um, then you are not signing up. For Twitter, you know, the 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 number of people who have signed up for that company um, is, I believe, close to a peak, um, and um, and I think that um, I think that Jack knew that too. Uh, I think he knew he could could kind of tweak the numbers here and there, get a few more people. Um, but at the end of the day, I think that the goal was always for him to uh, uh, to save the company by landing it somewhere. Um, and Disney, from what I've heard. The Disney deal was really, really close. Um, the problem wasn't just um, 
uh, wasn't just Twitter and the trolls and all that, that stuff that was part of it, but it was at the time Disney was dealing with the ESPN problems and so on and so forth. And they said, do we really want to bring on another another company and product that um, that could have potential problems like that? And um, and I think that the goal for Jack has always been um, uh, to to sell the company, uh, save save it from from dying by landing it somewhere, and and parachute out of there and um and from what i've heard and this is just theory and speculation from people close to him the reason he's always stayed at square is not because um he wants to run both companies but if let's just say disney were to acquire twitter and it were to be folded into disney um uh jack doesn't want to be just a, a a guy working at disney um jack has bigger and grander goals and so he could sell the company and say, oh, I can't come over because I got to go run this thing called Square over here. But um, thanks a lot. Great to see you. Good luck. And then he goes back to Square um, and maybe eventually transitions out of there and goes to run Disney or something like that, uh, which I think is his dream in life. But, um, but I, think that, uh, um, I think that the problem is, is that it's a double-edged sword to get there because the stock, even though the, val- the, the, the share price is hovering near its lowest again, it's not low enough. And that company is not worth $30 billion, which is what it was trying to seek. Um, uh, it's worth I, uh, probably a third of that, honestly. Um, and so in order to, to, to successfully land that company somewhere, I think Jack is going to have to get the stock price down a little bit more. Um, uh, and then there'll be potential suitors that could, could actually buy it. Is there any one company, and I'll, uh, this is my last Twitter question of the of the moment, but is there any one company that that sticks out to you as potentially a, a Twitter uh, acquirer? Um, you know, I mean, I think that um, I think that it's a I, I think it's a really difficult one. I you know I think that someone like Verizon or something like that could be a you know could be acquired. Does Jack want to be the guy that sells to Verizon? I, I don't or Comcast. I don't think so. Um, you know, the most obvious that would probably benefit from it the most, you know, is like a Disney or an Apple or a Google, um, you know, Apple, I don't think needs it right now. Um, I mean, I think they need, I, you know, they have an incredible social network on everyone's phone called iMessages. Um, uh, you know, I do think Apple could do a lot with Twitter, but it's also like, do you really want to be the, 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 do you really want to own the company that, that where Donald Trump is accusing, you know, the New York Times of being fake news and, and spouting off about how he wants to blow up North Korea and this, that, and the other. I think that that's the biggest problem for Twitter, and so therefore it is a really difficult sell. Um, uh, and and then finally, the biggest problem, I think, is that the bots, you know, that the bots is one of the most overreported, underreported aspects of Twitter where there are um, a large percentage of even the active accounts on Twitter, I believe, are bots. And um, and Twitter can't necessarily take them all offline because if it does, its its active user base will drop. Um, and uh, if you know, and anyone doing due diligence on that company probably will discover this. And so, therefore, they're not necessarily getting 328 million active users. They're probably getting uh, a little less than that. Well, we'll have to wait and see. It's uh, it, it's amazing. It's also amazing that um, you can have a massive multi-billion-dollar company and one of your objectives is potentially how you shake out in all of it and um, how people think of you. But I guess that's just Silicon Valley. 
That is that. That's that's the uh, um, that's the title of your memoir, John. That's it, I guess it's just Silicon <laughs> <Yeah>. Valley. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Nick Bilton, thanks for having me on, dude. I thank can't you. wait for the next time. Yeah, thank you for uh, for coming on. This has been great. We should uh, we'll we'll come back in in ten years and see uh, see see how many bots are on Twitter and and uh, if Travis is running Uber again and if Mark Zuckerberg is the president of the United States. Or the world. This is Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Thanks to my co-host today, John Kelly. You can read the columns and stories he referenced in our conversation on the Hive section of the Vanity Fair website. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with me, your host, Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a nice review when you're there. Thanks to the folks at Digital Media for their production work, and I will see you all next week. This has been a Digital Media production. Find your voice. America has a problem, one that is uniquely ours. On the new season of Long Shadow, I delve into the complicated history of firearms from the Second Amendment to the AR-15. I try to make sense of how we got here and how we might find a path forward. From Longlead, PRX, and Campside Media, in collaboration with The Trace, I'm Garrett Graff, and this is Long Shadow in Guns We Trust. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.